I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. I am the luckiest person alive. I'll tell you that openly. This podcast thing that I've started a couple of years ago just gets me to meet the nicest people. Like really, I have so many friends that I met on this podcast. I actually consider and I feel in my heart that we're lifetime friends. And it's just amazing, really. One of those is Owen O'Kane. I don't know if you heard our episode. It was May... I think May 15th, 2021, episode number 120. Uh, Owen has uh, written two incredible books, 10 to Zen and uh, 10 times happier, which, you know, I hosted him. I didn't really know what he was doing. I read the books. I was like, okay, we're going to have a wonderful conversation. And oh my God, his story, what he went through growing up in Ireland and how he ended up where he uh, ended up is just so inspiring. If you have not heard our episode uh, number 120, I recommend very strongly that you go back and listen to it. Uh, Owen has a dual medical and psychotherapy training and was the former clinical lead for the National Health Service of the UK uh, Mental Health Services. And he started writing, as we sometimes chat, out of a very personal experience, and then it went very far. So 10 to Zen was a uh, Sunday Times bestseller. And um, he has just come out or coming out. By the time uh, we release this, I hope in a couple of weeks time, his new book, How to Be Your Own Therapist, is uh, releasing on June 23rd. This conversation is part of a mini series that I'm doing that coincides with the release of my book. May 26th was the release of that little voice in your head. And there is a mega overlap between Owen's work and alignment and my work in terms of the idea that you are in charge somehow of your mental health. You are in charge of your brain if you want. And specifically today, we're going to focus deeply on one of my chapters, uh, talks about the idea of incessant thinking and how that one thought repeated over and over can completely destroy your life. Owen definitely talks a lot about that in this incredible book. I endorsed this book and I said, it's absolutely brilliant. I definitely think you should give it a try. And you should also give 10 to Zen and uh, 10 times happier a try if you haven't. Strong recommendation, a wonderful friend, an amazing human. And uh, I hope you will enjoy this conversation today. Owen, thank you so much. Thank you. What a lovely, lovely welcome. Oh my God. I hope I live up to the expectation. Oh, you have already. (laughs) already huge pressure yeah i mean we we actually most of um it's it's funny because i'm now in the uk and we have never really met in person until a couple of weeks ago yeah we overlapped yeah the the other the high performance podcast there you go yeah we, we you know all of us in the happiness scene are just running around like mad trying to spread the message and yeah, yeah. yeah we met in uh, owen was coming out of a podcast i was going in and uh we said okay pause we have to catch up and there we are But I I have a very important topic to start with, Uh, you know, with all of your um, training and psychotherapy and uh, all of the serious work that you do. You have an article out today in Hello Magazine that says dogs make you happy. Dogs make you happy, yeah. The things I get into. (laughs) What is that about? That was a funny one because I did that interview and I'd forgotten about the interview and it's in, it's in hello today. So a journalist called me and asked me to talk about, I'm always talking about my dog. Mm. Um, I've got a dog called Will. The other dog was called Kate. Oh, so it's a jubilee. <laughs> it's a jubilee today. So it's a royal scene. So the other dog was called Kate, but she was nicknamed Princess. The, the, the dog, the dogs, our dog walker in the doggy daycare nicknamed her Princess. Uh-huh. And she sadly died last year. She got to like 15, but you know, mm. we were obsessed by this dog. She ruled our life for 15 years. And we thought we'd take a break and wait for a year before we get another one. And of course, 
two months later, we couldn't bear <laughs> not having a dog. Uh-huh. So we got the other dog and we thought, well, what would we call him? And um, well, we joked about the royal thing. We thought, let's just call him Will. <laughs> and yeah, he's living up to his royal reputation. He's, yeah, he's treated like a lord. And um, and it, <laughs> he's incredible, actually. Um, I think dogs are amazing. And I use, you know, I, I, I still have a therapy practice and I will often have will and i had kate in a lot of my sessions and if i'm working with somebody who's really traumatized the dog will often be in the room with me and it's incredible to see what their intuition is like you know and how they can calm people down and what they bring out in people so i mean even though i joke about dogs and i am obsessed by dogs i do think they bring out the best in us as human beings or something about i you know look i think it's about the unconditional love they give they don't judge mm. they can be present with you i talk to my dog every day Man, the, I have a full-scale conversation. Does he talk back? No, he doesn't, of course. Of course he doesn't. <laughs> but that's the thing, isn't it? You know, you've got a forum when you're having a chat with a dog. You know, he's looking and the ears are going and his tail's wagging. You've just got a forum in which you're, you're having a conversation of sorts and the dog's quite happy engaging with the conversation, but there's no judgment. Mm. There's no limitations. Mm. I think sometimes when dogs look at you, they look into your soul. So, um, yeah, the, the old... Um, interview today talks about that really about i mean and we know as well chemically when you're around animals there is an increase in dopamine serotonin oxytocin so there is a change chemically to what goes on in our brains when we're around dogs and cats if you're a cat lover so yeah it's, it's, if yeah if because you're if you're not, not everyone, a cat lover I'm you a dog, wonder you i'm a wonder do- why i'm a dog love lover cats, yeah. but i mean i don't mind cats but i'm more of a dog lover so yeah, um, yeah. yeah if you go into my instagram profile you'll see the dog he rocks <laughs> up every now and then i can't leave him out you know so i have to ask because i i had a very traumatizing experience with the dog when i was young i was i must have been eight or nine and it was dark and this bo- dog was quite a big yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of pit bull like very aggressive and he chased me and honestly, I was gonna be bitten really badly, yeah, but yeah. then somehow the owner managed to pull it back. So for a very long time in my life, I was actually quite traumatized of dogs, but you know, I don't hate anything. So I, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they just freaking love me. Yeah, they like you. I don't know why. You know, like, I noticed earlier, we had coffee earlier, and I noticed you were saying the dog in the coffee shop, they, they gravitate towards they, you. They really do. So, so anywhere I go, Hmm? Like I'm the guy that there are so many dog lovers in wherever I go, right? Go to them, but they don't. No, they, they, the dogs always they, come I, to me. They pick up an energy. I really so does believe that. Does that mean I'm traumatized? Like, is that, you know, are they trying to, what are they trying to do? Do you know what I think? This is going to sound really cliched. I think dogs pick up on kindness. I think they do know. They? What, yeah, I think they so do. So what's wrong with them? Why do they come to me? <laughs> they, they obviously think you're kind. <laughs> oh no, I'm going to, I'm going to be evil from now on. <laughs> I do think yeah. they pick up on our energies. I really, really do. And I think if people are at ease with themselves, I think animals pick up on that. Mm. And I think, you know. I'm, I'm completely chilled. You are quite chilled and yeah, very yeah. at ease with yourself. Yeah. I mean, so I think that's probably what they pick up on. Yeah. Like, I'm not an animal expert, but it's interesting. I did an interview, I think it was last year for the second book. And um, it was one of the breakfast shows. And I was on talking about the book. And between, you know, before you go live and you're doing the interview, um, we were talking about the dog because I had been I was slightly <laughs> late because of the bloody dog. Mm-hmm. And um, he was a really young pup at that stage. And they ended up asking me to stay on the show. And we did a feature. They had a vet on the program. And they said, no you way. Pic- have you got a picture of your dog? And I said, yeah, I've got a picture of him. Will ended up with a full screen picture of himself on <laughs> national TV. Will. With me then ended up, I think I did more chat about the dog than I did the bloody book. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Royal in nature. He takes over. Yeah, royal in nature. I mean, that what happens with me, honestly, is that every dog lover sort of is encouraging their dog to like be, you know, so the dogs will come to me first and you can easily see like a minute in the dog owner becoming a little worried, like, is the dog leaving me? Like, oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, will they come Next back? Next time we meet, I'm going to bring him along. Oh, you're going to, you, you may regret to, that. He might end up being mine. <laughs> I'll bring him next time. Yeah. Let, let's talk about our little dogs up here. So our brains. And I think what you do every single time, Owen, is you take something that is sort of un 
discussed a bit taboo if you want. And you try to say, hey, there is a different way you can look at this, yeah, yeah. right? And something like 10 to Zen, the idea of you can actually through 10 minutes or you know some practice, yeah, yeah. you can get to Zen is at the time, honestly, was not something that a lot of people would have aligned to. It's that idea, again, in, in that little voice in your head, when I speak about neuroplasticity and the idea that tiniest things can change things. But here, what you're saying is you can be your own therapist. Yeah, you can. Let's talk about therapy first. So, yeah. so I feel that there is still quite a stigma around therapy, that, that there is, a, it's almost as if people don't want to say that they're going to therapist. Is that something you it's experience? It's like a dirty secret. I mean, like in my, my first set of therapy, and this was come back probably 20 odd years ago. It's a long, long time ago. But even now, I think the stigma is still around. But the first time I went for therapy, it was a recommendation. And um, I can remember walking up the road to go to therapy and been really conscious. It was locally where I lived. And when I got there, it's a very bizarre story. But when I got there, the therapist was a nun. Oh, she'd come recommend the person who recommended the therapist didn't tell me she was a nun. Mm -hmm. And then when I get to this convent, I was like, what am I doing at a convent? And of course, this lady comes out to the door and she wasn't in the full nun's outfit. She was just in fairly regular civvies at the time. And she was a therapist. But I can remember one of the first things about being there was that I felt relieved that it was in a convent because I thought, OK, nobody will know why I'm here. Oh, interesting. It was kind of like, oh, this is all right. I can get away with this because I could be going up to a convent for anything. And I just left the monastery. I'd been in a monastery for three years before I it. So that. it all would have fitted together anyway. But actually I was going for therapy and I used to sneak up there every week. Like I was having some, I joke with her about it. I used to sneak up like we were having some sort of illicit affair. I would be rocking up the road, checking to see, you know, had anyone seen me and was I going in and did anyone know she was a therapist? So I am a therapist and I know what it's like to, you know, to kind of not want people to know that I had a therapist and, and, you know, I have clients who will even say to me, please don't put therapist on the invoice. I've had, I've been asked Whoa. a number of times not to have the sign on my door because people associate therapy with some sort of what, you know, what will it mean? What will people think of me? Will they think I'm weak? Will they think there's something wrong with me? Will they think I'm crazy? And for me, that's a travesty really, because I believe every human being on the planet would benefit therapy. Because we are human beings, we have this organ in the top of our head that sometimes doesn't work or function the way we need it to. And we're not trained how to operate our minds. We're not. We're not trained how to emotionally regulate. We're not told how to manage unhelpful thinking. We grow up in cultures where we just kind of almost crash land into adulthood, not really knowing what to do. It's like getting into a car without taking driving lessons. Yeah. And I think this is how we often rock up in adult life. So for me, therapy doesn't necessarily come associated with having severe mental health problems. It comes with being a human being. And as a human being, sometimes you will struggle no matter who you are. There will be times when you will struggle and that could be a relationship. It could be anxiety. It could be feeling demotivated. It could be feeling a bit lost or a bit hopeless. And that's what good therapy is. And, and it's not just about talking or just going along for a conversation. Therapy is an act of doing. Therapy is a really proactive process. And that's what I try and cover in the book. And I try and map out how you become your own therapist, because my goal with every client, if you were my client in therapy, our first conversation would be getting to know you. But my key goal for you at the end of the session would be is that you don't need me. That's my key goal with every client. I don't want my clients to need me. I don't want them to come back. That's interesting. Yeah. And I mean that in the best possible way. And I have great clients and I normally build up great relationships with them, but I don't want to see them when we finish therapy because, you know, I don't want to disempower them. I know you a little yeah. bit. No, and, and I always say to them, no, I mean, I, they're, they're lovely people. And of course, I'd want to see them as human beings, but I don't want to see them professionally because I want to... That's, that's actually a really, this is one of the big issues. I mean, if I'm a huge fan and I always tell everyone that they need to read Freakonomics. Yeah. And one of the big issues, if you ask me, is that therapy is by, by the hour. So some people don't want to go to therapy because it seems misaligned that if I'm cured, I'm not going to pay them by the hour anymore. My therapist wants me to stay. And the whole process of therapy, sorry to say, seems to reinforce that a little bit because the therapist could know around half an hour in exactly what's wrong with that person, but they never really say it. You can work it out quickly. I mean, I have a premise. I mean, 
you know, it depends on what type of therapy you're trained in. If if I were a psychoanalyst, you could have someone on the couch for 20 years. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. There are people who may need longer intensive interventions and that happens. But when I'm working with a client, I'll be very, very clear that we're going to work together and I will, you know, depending on the context, I might say, okay, we're going to work for 16 weeks together. And, and that's our period of time together. Now, occasionally and exceptionally, I will maybe sometimes it will go over or other times it might be shorter. But what I've discovered is that at the beginning, when you say to your client, okay, here's our time period together. This is what we're going to focus on. Yeah, it's always a collaborative agreement. The client works harder because they know it's time limited and that it's not just going to be a casual. And I also ethically and morally think therapy is really, really expensive. You know, I don't want to charge people to come to therapy for two, three, four, five years to me. It just doesn't sit comfortably with me. And I guess I know from experience that the more focused you can get someone, then the harder they will work. And, you know, for most people, regardless of what's going on in their life, the minute you get them to change their relationship with themselves, how they think, how they treat themselves, you're on the road to recovery anyway. Mm. And I think sometimes therapy can be overly complicated. Yeah, Us I therapists agree. use a lot of language and a lot of jargon. And, we're, you know, we think we're quite clever because we do a lot of training and we've got a lot of experience. But what I've tried to do in this book is just to make it mainstream common sense language that anyone would pick up and say, okay, this is me. I get this. And it gives, you know, tools and tips and guides on how you work through this stuff. Yeah. So in, in a way, I I find it interesting because you what your book is saying is run me out of a job. Yeah, that is not interesting. I mean, I could be, I could be unemployed at the end of all of this here. I released the book and I, <laughs> it's yeah. funny you say that I was doing a, I was recording the audio book the other day mm. and there were other people around recording audiobooks and they had a list of the the books that were being recorded that day and on the tea break someone said to me are you the guy doing the how to be your own therapist book and I said yeah yeah they said are you not writing yourself out of a job yeah are you not <laughs> and and you know something unapologetically either way I think here's the deal Mo there are millions of people the Guardian did a, an article last year and they estimate that there's potentially about eight million people in the UK needing treatment of some description. Now, how we measure these figures is really questionable, but I believe there are millions of people out there who need, unquestionably who need treatment. Now, here's the problem. Either they can't get treatment because wait lists are so long or they can't afford treatment. So kind of my motivation for doing this book was if we know there are millions of people out there who can't access treatment or can't afford treatment, why wouldn't I sit down and write a book with my experience over the last 25, 30 years of physical and mental health, why don't I sit down and write what I know? So why do we, you know, I said to you earlier, we keep it like it's a secret. Therapists hold on to this stuff like it's a secret. But I think, no, why wouldn't we pass it on and share it and think, okay, this is what perhaps might help. This is why telling your story and getting to know who you are will set you free. And it does, you know, look, this is why I get really passionate about my work every day of my career. I see people in, in two states. I see people either really distressed at the beginning of therapy and I see people at the end of therapy empowered and free. And I guess what that's what I love about my job because even though it's difficult when you're working with people who are really distressed, there's always that kind of internal knowing this is not forever because my experience and my knowing tells me I watch people get to the other end every day. And that's possible for most people and I do believe that. So, so I guess really that's the joy and the excitement in my work that I, I can and know there's an outcome that's going to be much better than where it is today. And that, that for me is really empowering and life affirmative. This actually requires us to, to stop at it for a while, because I, I believe one of the most contested views is, look, it's either my genes or my life circumstances. I am unhappy. It's not my responsibility. I'm just unhappy. This is where I am. Don't blame me for it. And by the way, nobody should ever be blamed for it. Yeah, of course. But, but what you're saying here is that if the work is done, people will come out of that state they and can. be happy. Unqu unquestionably. I mean, I think part of the challenge is that, and this is going to sound a really odd thing to say, I think sometimes if we're unhappy and we're struggling and we're in difficult places in our life, that can become familiar and it can become comfortable. I know that, yeah. And it's kind of almost like, you know, the rest of the world can feel chaotic and unsafe and unpredictable. And often the one thing that can feel 
predictable is how I feel and what I know. So if someone wakes up every day and they're feeling depressed or they're feeling really sad or lonely or isolated, at least it's familiar. I think often people don't realise that, that I, they almost get attached to the familiarity of, well, OK, well, at least this I have a control over. This is familiar to me. I know what it's like. It's kind of almost like, you know, when you're a kid, you have a teddy bear that it's like a comfort toy, mm. you know. And I think sometimes that can happen to people where even though it's horrible and difficult to live with, it can just be comfortable and familiar. And my job often is to help people see that perhaps they've got a little bit attached to that state. Yeah. And my job is to help them see there's another way and you can begin to let go. And there are ways of letting go. Now, therapy at the beginning for most people is like a tug of war. Of course. Because, you know, you're, it's not all, you know, people think therapy is all lovely and great and magical. It's not. You know, it goes through different stages. And often there's a point in therapy, even in my own therapy, where it's bloody uncomfortable because you've been challenged and you've been faced with choices and you're thinking, okay, do you want to let this go? Do you want to hold on to this stuff? Do you want to keep behaving that way? Do you want to keep thinking that way? And of course, nobody likes to be challenged. So of course you're like, mm, gonna. and then you feel uncomfortable because someone's highlighting something that you don't like. So there's always that middle ground of the tug of war that goes on. And then the freedom then comes when you think, actually, they're right. You know, with all my clients, if I'm making someone uncomfortable, I'm doing my job. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Not uncomfortable in the sense that it's distressing for them, but if I'm making them feeling a little bit unnerved and a little bit uneasy and I'm challenging them to think about other ways, then I'm working. Yeah. I worry more if, I, if a client comes and it's all wonderful and everything's easy and, oh my God, this is incredible. I'm not doing my job. Mm. So, mm. And, and I think it's the same in the book, really. Mm. You know, there's parts of the book you're thinking, okay, this is uncomfortable because I'm saying, <laughs> no, it is your responsibility. Mm. I'm not going to change you. Mm. No one, not one single person on the planet is going to change you. Mm. I've got tools and techniques and insights perhaps that are going to be really helpful, but you're going to do the work and you're going to make it happen. I think that's the visual way I normally describe this. And I talk about it in, uh, in that little voice in your head is going to the gym, mm. right? Yeah, yeah. You know, there are the tools and techniques. There are methods for you to become fitter, right? Healthier, but getting out of the couch and going to the gym, yeah, yeah. that's your choice, that, that's right? And, yeah. and I think your, your description of you get comfortable with it is probably exactly the reason why people pay for gym subscriptions and don't go, Yeah, yeah. right? Because you get into that moment in your life where you go like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and, and subscribe. This is my yeah, new, yeah, new year, yeah. new me. I'm gonna make this my new thing. And then somehow you go like, but it's not working as quickly as I want. It's very uncomfortable. I just don't like it. We want everything quickly. And look, it's the easiest thing in the world. I would say probably with 99.9% .9 of clients I meet, Everyone will come in and they will sit down and say, I'm having a tough time. I'm really struggling. And most of the time they will say, I'm struggling because this terrible thing happened. I'm struggling because of my job. I'm struggling because of my wife, my husband, my kids. I haven't got enough money. Now, all of that stuff will be true to some extent. Yes. Life is difficult, as you know, as mm. I know, mm. difficult, tough things happen. Mm. And they can't floor you and it takes a while to pick yourself back up again. So I'm not minimizing the impact of the adversities of life. But I rarely meet someone who comes into therapy who says, I'm struggling because of the way I'm approaching my life. <laughs> rarely. Hmm. So what we want to do, and it's a, it's, it's, a hu it's a human response. We want to attribute our suffering to what's going on externally. Yeah, we externalize. And of course, the external stuff, of course, it's part of the struggle and it's a part of the triggering and it's part, you know, we can't discount it. But the majority of the struggle is about the internal stuff. And of course, most people, when they come into therapy, won't see, actually, you have a huge role to play in your recovery. And there, there is way more that you can do about this than you realize. And that's the power of therapy. You know, therapy really is, I know it's going to sound cliched, but therapy is an inside job. Mm. And I know certainly, even in my own life, regardless of what's going on in my world, no matter how busy I am or what challenges are around, when my internal world is quiet and steady, 
Nothing, and I'm at ease nothing and on the peace. outside matters. It's okay. It's okay. It'll all yeah. it'll all work my, out. It's fine. Yeah. My my uh, son's my son's tattoo. You know, the gravity of the battle means nothing to those at peace. If yeah. you're if Absolutely. you're inside, right? Absolutely. You know, if you're peaceful inside, not, it's a, nothing it's, it's outside everything. matters. And yeah. I and I honestly I believe that, and I try to live that wholeheartedly because I also know that when I don't live that, and like every other human being on the planet, I will deviate and I will drift off. Mm. It's like, you know, we're, we're, we're anchored. And when we're anchored, we're strong and we're great. When we're not anchored, we drift off. And I know what that feels like. Mm. Suddenly I'm comparing or I'm doubting myself or I'm reacting in ways that are unhelpful. Mm. You know, like every other human being, I have my flaws and my weaknesses. And I realize that when I'm not anchored and I'm not at peace and I'm not steady, then I don't function and I don't manage as well. And I don't do my job as well. So I guess in my line of work, I've got much better at kind of thinking my top priority always has to be my internal state. It's inside. Because when my internal state is level and steady, I give my best and I'm at my best and I do my work well. And of course, the mission of my work is to similar to what you're doing is just to try and ease human suffering in whatever way I can. That's all that matters. I think we're all here to do different things. I think if we can make life a bit easier and a bit more manageable and we can ease suffering, then we're doing our job. We're showing up in the way we're supposed to in life. But that involves me taking the commitment to deal with my stuff. And if I don't, then, you know. Yeah. So we spoke about that a little bit of how many coaches and therapists and others out there, you know, speakers on happiness, even authors on happiness that may not have fully done their work already. And it's a you quite gotta an interesting- You've got to do the work. Hmm? You've got to do the work. Yeah. You need to know who you are. I mean, this is a key thing about this book really, because, you know, the, the first half of this book I talk about, you need to be able to, you know, you need to understand your story because the moment you understand your story and you tell it, then it will help you understand who you are and why you are today. And what I would say to anyone listening today, if you do not understand your story and you don't understand why you're struggling as a human being, then you will continue to struggle. We need to be able to know why we catastrophize. We need to understand why we're anxious sometimes. We need to understand why we have these behaviors or patterns that we get stuck in because we don't just get them by magic. They evolve, they develop. We're all programmed, all this neuropathway hardwiring that goes on in our formative years. It all happens because of what we experience in life. And I guess you need to understand that. So to give a personal example, I didn't realize I was anxious until I left Northern Ireland. Yeah. I mean, we which is hilarious. This last time, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was living in a war zone and I think, and I don't have anxiety because I was too busy functioning and getting on with it. And then of course I leave and I come to London and a car backfires and I'm bloody on the floor because I'm jumping or like suddenly I realize, oh my God. And then I can then start to match my story and tell my story and think, oh God, there's a lot of things that happened in my life that helped me understand who I am and why I struggle. And I think most people need that to happen because otherwise you hear people and say, oh God, I'm my life's rubbish or I'm crap or I'm rubbish or I'm shit or I'm not good enough, whatever the context may be. And you think, no, you're not. No, you're not. That doesn't define who you are. Stuff happened to you and you struggle. Mm. And that's all you need to understand. You need to understand the what's happened and why it might relate to how and why you struggle. And then when people, when that coin drops, it's quite powerful. People think, oh, this is not me. I'm not, not a complete waste of time. I'm not rubbish. Maybe there is more to me. And that for me is really, I mean, they're, they're the kind of the light bulb. They're the explosive moments in therapy when people think, Oh God, it's not that bad after all, you know, uh, you know, and maybe I can do something about this and maybe there is hope and there is always hope. You know, you've heard me yeah. talk about this before. Yeah. There is always hope. And there, and that, that's when the magic happens. Then when people think, oh, okay, well, you know, I'll say to someone, you learn to worry. That's okay. But you can also learn to unworry. Mm. Or unlearn to yeah, worry. Yeah. Yeah. Or you learned that you're not good enough. You can learn that you are good enough. Mm. You know, it's that simple. Mm. Because our brains are like sponges. They learn, they absorb. Unfortunately, when we're younger, we don't really have the skills to differentiate what's right or wrong. We just take it all on board. So getting older, then you have rational intelligence. You can say, okay, well, that may not strictly be true. I mean, if I were to listen to my script, which was you're, you're a reject, you're dirty, you're sinful, you're bad, life is not safe. They were the core messages of my early story. 
mixed in with love from my mum and family members and stuff that thankfully interjected. But if I had listened to the key learnings of my early story, would be actually, well, I'm not enough. Life isn't safe. I'm not a good person. Because that's what was, the, that was a reinforced early message. But of course, thankfully for me, I met a brilliant therapist, which is what started me on my journey. And I guess, of course, why I've written the book. I've learned that I don't have to live that way because none of that was truth. So what, why do our brains tell us those stories? I mean, in an interesting way, of course, it's understandable. Mm. I, you, when we spoke last time on here on episode 120, when you spoke about being a, a gay man in Belfast, Northern Ireland, yeah, in, Belfast, yeah. and with all of the violence, not only the macro violence, but the violence directed against you, the mm. feeling. In a way, I wouldn't blame you for having created that narrative, right? It seems to you from everything that's coming from outside you that this narrative is true you're rejected by that society you're yeah. you're unsafe yeah, yeah. how does one deal with that uh, it's, a, it's a brilliant question and you're way more techy than i am i know you understand <laughs> technology i mean i am not techy here so i'm not going to dig a hole and go down a road that i don't understand but you know understand technology better than i, I do. do and probably the best way i can answer that question is that if i use my own story my programming the information that was fed to me in my early years, wasn't accurate content. Exactly what I say in that little voice in your head. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't accurate content. Yeah, so it was the, the wrong code. It, yeah, so the stuff that was given to me was, you know, it was given to me, you know, the circumstances I were in were just un unpredictable. I just happened to live in a war zone. But the stuff around the shaming, the judgment, that was coming from a place of fear. Mm. So the people who were judging me or shaming me at one point, I tell a story in a TED talk I did recently. And I remember walking home from school one day and four boys come up, didn't even know who I was, but they were in my school. I was getting a bit of bullying at the time. I was playing piano. So the little gay kid was been identified quite quickly. And these four boys come up and one of them come up and he just said queer. And then the other four of them spit on my face all at one time to the point I can't see in front of me. I have so much saliva on my face. And this lady comes over, a stranger, and she hands me a tissue. And I initially think she's going to be really kind when she gives me the tissue. And when she hands me the tissue, she said, wipe that off your face quickly before anyone sees you. And what that story tells me, and when I, you know, when I think back in the story was, it was all about shaming. And those boys, they didn't understand even what they were saying or what they were doing, but they were frightened of difference. Mm. And that lady who was saying, wipe that off your face quickly, she was also frightened of difference. And I think and that was just faulty programming because back at that time, we didn't understand gender, gender sexuality the way we do now. It just wouldn't happen in the same way now. It's not to say that it won't happen. But, but other things will happen. Other things will happen, but that doesn't mean that that's accurate information. It's inaccurate information coming from a place of fear. It's the wrong code, yeah. It's the wrong code. So, of course, I know that now as an adult. So I think, okay, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not a bad human being. I'm a decent You're human being. You're a wonderful being. human being. You know, I've got a lot to bring to life, and I hope I bring a lot to my life. So now I can rework with that. And I think, okay, well, now that I know that, my work in therapy was about, okay, I just need to, you know, kind of reprogram. Debug the with, code, yeah. And, and kind of reprogram with the right information, which is, I know what you talk about in your mm. book, about the importance of reprogramming, but more importantly, being able to identify that a lot of this content that goes on in our mind is just garbage. Absolutely. It's just residual content. Absolutely. I mean, the tagline of my book is adjust the code that runs your brain. And I, yes. and I simply openly say, look, my analogy to computer science is super accurate because you can buy yourself the most expensive iPhone and you put the wrong app on it and it will completely destroy of your whole operation, will. right? And that's what we have. We have beautiful machines in every possible way, the, your, your brain, your, the way you utilize your body mm. and everything. And somehow you just install that weird code on it. Yeah, yeah. Like someone comes in and says, hey, if you like this yeah, or yeah, if you yeah, like yeah. that, you're not one of us, you're bad, right? And somehow that code keeps running over and over and over and over. That incessant thought in my work is really the biggest reason for yeah. unhappiness in life. Yeah, yeah. That one code, one thought that you keep running over and over and over in your head. How do you stop that? I mean, what you're describing there, I mean, our, our language is different because we come from different words, but I talk a lot about habitual patterns. Mm. So if you've got ways of thinking, you know, and we all have them, we have patterns of thinking, it could be you catastrophize. 
Mm. It could be you minimize. It could be you have kind of very black and white thinking. It could be you self-deprecate. It could be you self-judge. We all have them. We're all taught ways and patterns of thinking. Now, the interesting thing is the brain is so clever at creating stories. Yeah. And it will create so many stories. Often, I think what we fail to recognize is that they fall into patterns. Mm. And I think it's a much more powerful way when you're able to see the brain creating a narrative and a story to say, okay, that's my catastrophizer. That's so interesting. That's my judge. Mm. That's my critic. That's my underminer. Call it whatever you want. But the minute you then begin to see it for what it is, it will play out in different ways. So for me, look, I joke about this all the time. Irish, Catholic and gay. So, you know, that gives me a, <laughs> yes. that gives me an automatic doctorate in shame. So that's the one I'm good at. I apologize so, <laughs> for what the world no, does, no, no. man. I'm sorry. So that's my, you know, shame is my big thing. So yeah. that's the one. That's so you have a, a, oh my. an internal shamer. Sort oh, it's of. just like, it's so primarily hardwired. Mm. That's kind of like my hot ticket. So when that pattern plays out for me, and it can be quite sneaky, it will play in many, many different ways. I just get very, very good at spotting. Okay, there's my shame. And it's come up. Oh, there's my judgment. And I think when I see them that way, it's almost like learning to play with them, you know, mm. like meerkats that jump mm. up. It's almost like, oh, okay, here they are again. Mm-hmm. And, and here's the interesting thing is they, they pop up not to like, you know, it feels like they're sabotaging you, mm-hmm. but it's always worth remembering that these patterns crop up because they think they're protecting you and keeping you safe. Mm. And I think we often miss that, that these patterns are all part of defended protective mechanisms. So if we were younger and difficult things happened to us, the brain then thinks, okay, you better watch out for that. You better be prepared for that. You better try and prevent hurt happening to you again. Mm. So it's either trying to protect us or prevent hurt. And it will do that by playing out in all these different patterns. And I guess often what we know now is, okay, but you don't need to do that anymore. And it's the ability to be able to see that. It's kind of almost like, you know, I work with minds in a very helpful way. I see them as helpful allies who are trying to do something good for me. Yeah. But they're just working too hard when they don't need to. So it's kind of almost like saying, it's okay. You know, you can take a break. Yeah. When I did this talk recently, it's probably really the most honest example I can think of that it's recent. Before I did this TED talk recently, there's about 30 seconds before you go on stage. And I was the first up, I was opening the show, which is a big thing. I was playing piano. I could hear people coming in. It was all happening really, really quickly. And the 30 seconds before I went on stage, I just unexpectedly, it just came out of nowhere. My shame just popped in. Oh, come on. Just literally. Perfect timing. It just jumped in. And there I was about to give a talk to hundreds of people and cameras and all of this stuff. And I thought, oh, and I could feel it. And it was, you know, the story was like, oh, my God, what are you doing? What if you screw up? And I could hear the voice and I could all, and I just steadied momentarily. I could see it for what it was. And then here's the interesting thing is I made a choice during the talk because I was conscious it happened. And I made a choice during the talk to name that shame had jumped in with me that day. Mm. And I talked about doing the talk and bringing anxiety and shame with me onto the stage unapologetically. Because when you do that, then you reclaim the power back. You think, yeah, these boys jump up sometimes thinking they're helping me out. But the moment you shine light on them and you embrace them and you don't push them away, they lose all their power. Mm. And I think we don't realize that, that we have a lot more power over how we manage all of these things. Absolutely. And how we relate to them. Absolutely. You know? I mean, one, one of the tricks that I always do and people love is the idea that I call my brain Becky. But, yeah, yes, I remember but, that. But, yeah. but, uh, but the funny thing is I also almost personalize those negative characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the one that's negative and always looking for everything wrong with life, I call him Arthur. Okay. It was basically, I mean, or at least I visualize him as one of, I love this gentleman, right? Yeah, He's yeah, yeah, one yeah. of the most brilliant people I know, but he constantly looks for everything that's wrong. Like you, yeah, give, yeah, yeah, you yeah. give him a beautiful basket of apples with everything in it. Like it's amazing. And he looks at it and he goes like, to... that one is missing a leaf, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, what's yeah, yeah. up, Arthur? Like, come on, chill man, right? And we have that in our brains. And by picturing that character, you know, this is the judge, this is the critic, this is the grumpy, this is the always negative and so on. You can actually 
sort of visualize how you dealt with Artur when he was so negative, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, what do you tell him? It's like, come on, man. Like, you yeah. know, can't you see all the beauty out there? That's I, I say that to my, my brain as well. Yeah. And I, I have to say over time with neuroplasticity, those characters, they never go away, but they sort of become a little more laid back. You I know? think that's a good way of putting it, actually. And I, and I love that expression, they never go away, because I think often people think that, that there's a, there's a magic ending to all of this. No, there you're isn't. human. Yeah, you're a human being, and there's going to be ups and downs. You know, I've given up on arriving at. I think when I was younger and less experienced, you know, I, I would have this notion of wanting to arrive at the perfect place. You know, when I'm all together and I just feel solid and life's going good and I'm I'm in control. I mean, it's never bloody happened. That's the reality, and it's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I've given up on that because you know, every time I think, okay, I've got to, I've worked it out. I mean, it's dangerous territory to get to. Yeah. I realized, actually, you know, I haven't worked it out. And, and what I'm realizing of late was I had this brilliant conversation with a friend of mine recently was the more I do my work and the more I write the books and do the other stuff is that the more it encourages you to look at your darker side. Totally. I mean, that's the reason I write, to be honest. Because you're faced with all of your own demons. And the more I do, the more I realize is that, you know, the deeper the layers go, call it whatever you want, spiritual journey, growth. I mean, you can use whatever language you want on it. The more you do that and the more you put yourself out on a public platform by doing talks and books and all of that stuff, the more can you almost like something out there bigger forces you to think, okay, but I also need you to go a bit deeper. And that's really uncomfortable sometimes because I don't know about you. I love it. But my imposter sometimes will jump out, particularly when I'm when I'm doing a talk or whatever, particularly mm. around mental wellness and, mm. uh, and the mm. work that we do, that I think sometimes there's an, there's an expectation. You know, I love when I, when I do a radio interview or something and you arrive and they say, oh my God, you've done a book on happiness or you've done this book and stuff. So you're going to teach us all in two minutes how to change your lives. So like the expectation is massive that you're expected to be this beacon of optimism and hope and positivity. Now you might be having the most rubbish day yourself for whatever reason. And I've got really much better at kind of managing these expectations that I have to be perfect and fully aligned and fully charged for everything I do because actually I don't. I've got much better thinking, do you know something? What I have to be is I just have to be open, honest, human, and deliver as best I can on the day, mm. whatever that looks like. And that's enough. Mm. And that, that's been a huge journey for me because I think there is a, a real perfectionist mm. in me. I talk about perfectionism a lot in the book mm. where I think, you know, I should be and I must be. Actually, no, I shouldn't. And I, I don't have to be any of these things. All I have to do is be truthful. And I think, look, you, you know as well as I do, when you meet people in life, whether it's an interaction like this or whether you're doing a talk or a workshop, when people are truthful and honest, you feel it immediately. Mm. There's a tangibility to it. It's almost like it's unspoken. It's just like you, mm. you can't teach that. You can't train that with someone. And I think my work is about truth telling. Mm. So what I'm really, really learning is my work's about truth telling. So that's exactly that, what I have to commit to. That's incredible. And if that's imperfect, then yeah. it has to be imperfect. Mm. And, and that's, quite, that's quite liberating because it means, it means that I don't have to rock up feeling that I have to be brilliant and the best and in control and powerful and strong and positive and motivational all the time. Yeah, but we know, but we know there is no one perfect. I think, I think if this was ancient Egypt, this should be carved on a wall somewhere. All I have to do is to be truthful. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I, I, were, I talk about this deeply in, in my chapter about emotions, yeah. where we in the modern world uh, constantly attempt to bury those emotions, to, not to hide them from the world, but to hide them from ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the truth is they're there. They're eating you up from inside. Like but they're there. Yeah. No, they're there. But here's the, the amazing thing about, I love that you're talking about emotions because we limit emotions, don't we? I mean, we all want happy, you yeah. know, we, we've both written books on happiness, you know, so, you know, we can't knock happiness too much. It's mm-hmm. part of what we talk about, but we all want happiness, success, achievement, contentment. We all want these things. And, and that's okay because, you know, I don't think life should be a misery fest. I think life should be about living as fully as you can do. So, you know, never apologize for wanting to be happier. I think we're, we're meant to be happy if we can be, but mm. we just create the obstacles. But I also believe that the other emotions that come up, fear, anxiety, 
uncertainty, hopelessness, all of these other emotions that will come up from time to time, they are not bad. They're not wrong. Absolutely. They're part of the human experience. Prolonging them unnecessarily is wrong, but having them is absolutely part of the functioning of the human machine. Absolutely. Fear is there for a reason. Address the reason, embrace it, you know, bring it to the front. Don't hide it. Absolutely. Because otherwise you're not even benefiting from that fear. But I'd say even more than that, there are be curious about what it's trying to teach Absolutely. you. So the day the feeling yeah. moves and I'm sad today or I'm anxious or I'm fearful, just allow yourself to go beyond it. Okay, what? You're here. Mm. You've rocked up today. I, you know, mm. create space around the emotion. Think, okay, what are you trying to teach? Because it could be it's trying to, you know, encourage you to make an adjustment, a tweak, a new decision, reflect and stuff. So it's kind of like, and I think there's something incredible about that when you become really curious about all of them and think okay these are all signposts and guides none of them are right or wrong or good or bad they're all just our internal mechanisms our signposts that are all trying to bring us back to this point of equilibrium and stability and internal steadiness that i talk about if you let them all teach you then christ you know something something magical happens so let's go back to being your own therapist so You're not in any way saying don't go to therapy. No, not at all. Yeah, but you're also saying there is a way where you can practice for 10 minutes a day. Yeah, the book's in two halves. So look, you know, as I said earlier, the motivation for the book is a lot of people can't get therapy. A lot of people can't afford therapy. So I think, you know, let's not keep it a secret. The book's in two halves. The first half is like a crash course in what you would cover in therapy. Mm. You know, how you tell your story, but truthfully. Mm. Not the rehearse polish version, tell it truthfully. And then I teach in the book how you can then map your story into your current life. And Kenny, it's all like doing a jigsaw, how you fit those pieces together. And I then talk about knowing what it is you want for your life. Because, mm. you know, this, this is a really interesting thing for me. I meet so many people who come along and they talk about their life and what they want. And then they describe stuff and you think, is that your life? Is that what you want? And then you discover it's actually not. It's a whole set of rules and values and beliefs yeah. that they're carrying. So the first half in the book is like a real crash course on what I'd be covering in the fundamentals of therapy. And then the second half of the book is, okay, how can you become your own therapist in your everyday life? So it's 10 minutes a day and I've broke it down into three sections and it's called ready, which is the beginning of the day. Mm-hmm. Steady, which is the middle, in the middle <laughs> of the day and reflect, which is at the end of the day. So I break it up into three sections and then I do a chapter in there when, when kind of life throws curveballs. Yeah. You know, when life throws you unexpected, the big moments, bereavement, mm. Mm. loss, disappointment, uncertainty. You, when, when, when the big kind of curveballs come in, I, I, I also give tips on how we navigate our way around, the, you know, the bigger moments w- when they come our direction. So I think, you know, look, regardless of who you are as an adult, whether you've been to therapy, haven't been to therapy, whether you have bigger issues, smaller issues, whether you're just curious about your own growth and development. I wholeheartedly believe there's something in there for everyone. I've really, when I sat down to write the book, which was probably why it was the hardest book to write, I really had a much broader audience in mind. I, even in the color of the book, mm. I wanted it to be blue because I, sometimes, yeah, I, I just wanted it to be not just a, you know, as we know from the research, females are more attracted to self-help type books and meals or and I wanted this to be a book that both men women teenagers I wanted to be a book that anyone just curious about living a better life Mm. would pick up comfortably and and I've you know I've said earlier that I I don't want to apologize for therapy because you know we all should have that our own therapist within us that internal wisdom and guide that helps us out because ultimately we are with ourselves most of our lives and the more comfortable we can get with our internal world and have that access to wisdom and a practical guide internally well then life just becomes much more easier it's like having an internal emotional sat nav (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) you know and i think maybe that's you know that's essentially what the book is is you know we use a sat nav if we're out and about when we're lost you know maybe this is the internal emotional sat nav yeah, I think it's you going to the gym on your own without a personal trainer, that's, basically. That's it. Yeah. So I let's talk about the curveballs for a second. You happen to have coined a very interesting term, PPSD. PPSD. Yeah, post-pandemic uh, stress, stress disorder. disorder. Yeah. I don't remember which article that was. It was like a few months ago. It, yeah, it, it was during the pandemic. And I, I talked about post-pandemic stress disorder, which which isn't post, post-traumatic stress disorder. It was specifically in relation to the pandemic. 
and I talked about my concern about the residual traumatic impact of the pandemic, not during it, because my interest in trauma is around growing up in Northern Ireland. Mm. And what we learned in Northern Ireland during, during all the trauma times was that you never see the true impact of trauma at the time. Yes. You see it months later. Mm. And I was very conscious of this, that people were getting through lockdowns and we were in and out of lockdowns and we didn't know and we did know and it was vaccines were coming through. So there was so much happening and people were anxious and struggling, but I was conscious that this was only the beginning. So I wrote about that and I said, we're foolish if we think that we're going to come out of lockdown and it's all fine and we're done and we're back to normal. And I, I wrote about post-pandemic stress disorder and the Financial Times, interestingly, picked it up and did a huge piece on it. And then some American journalists talked about it. And I had some colleagues at the time criticize it and said, this is not real trauma, you know, and they kind of backlashed a bit on it. And that's absolutely fine. Everyone can have an opinion. But I hold true to that, that I still think, and I we're now beginning to see it, which is really interesting, coming out of lockdowns and life in the UK, going back to normal. I'm watching people at the minute and it's fascinating because I'm seeing in clinical practice people with more heightened anxiety. Yeah. I'm seeing people with more variations in their mood than I've seen previously. I'm watching people at the minute almost in a state of, I was watching the news yesterday and the number of people who have booked flights to go on holiday, there's almost like a frantic frenzy to get away and do stuff. And I think it's kind of almost like what you see in normal trauma. It's almost like a state of disbelief. Mm. that people are just frantically thinking, oh, I just need to get my life back again. I just need to do stuff. I just need to travel. I just want to do that. I think there's an inherent fear in people at the moment. What if this happens again? Mm. Or what if we have to deal with this again? So I think there feels almost like there's a, a frenzy at the moment. And it's brilliant to see people out living again and reclaiming life. But I also think that there's a lot of resilience. You cannot lock people away for two years. Take away their routines, their liberties, their freedoms. Surround that within a, you know, a very, very strong sense of unknowing and unpredictability. You know, you can't as a population group go through that and come out the other end thinking, okay, let's go on as normal. Mm. We can't. It's not possible. Psychologically, it is impossible. And I think we're all experiencing varying degrees of this post-pandemic stress disorder and uh, the kind of residual trauma, how you experienced it might be different to my experience of it. But I think we've all been to lesser or greater degrees traumatized by, uh, you know, we're watching horrific headlines every day. Yeah. Deaths, deaths, more deaths, fearful statistics, fearful imaginings about what could come next. You cannot reinforce that into the human brain because, you know, again, you're feeding the brain lots of very fearful content. You can't do that for two years and expect people after two years of reinforced negative, fearful information to feel completely okay. So how, how you know, if one someone watching us or listening to us, how would they recognize that within themselves and what should they it, do about it? It's a good question. I think it's just about keeping an eye on what's going on for you at the minute. You know, you're not sleeping as well. You notice that you're engaging in behaviors. Are you drinking more? Or are you engaging in stuff that you know isn't good for you? Are you finding your anxieties higher than normal? Are you struggling to function the way you normally do? Are relationships proven problematic? Do you find it difficult to concentrate? All of these questions about how you are within yourself, how you're functioning, how you're thinking, how you're behaving. If things are not going as well as they would normally be doing, for you know, going for you and you notice, actually, I just don't feel that steadiness or I am struggling more days than I'd want to, then I think it's worth taking it seriously to either start engaging in a bit of work seek help, get a bit of support, talk to someone about it. My argument is that when we talk, we process, we're dealing with stuff. I describe mm. moving forward and getting help. It's almost like untying a knot. Mm. And the moment you can recognize, okay, there are problems here at the moment and you make a decision to do something about that, you then begin that process of unlocking. So you're untying these knots, but you need to be self-aware enough to check in on yourself. Mm. We're not doing that enough. We we check in on each other all the time. We meet each other today. First thing, how are you doing? Mm. You know, we do that. Superficially, all. though. Superficially. I mean, not you and I, no, no. by the way. But yeah, I mean, most people, again, I write about that in yeah. that little voice yeah. in your head. I have, I actually have a practice exercise that I basically call, don't say I'm fine. Yeah, yeah. But when someone asks you a yeah, question, yeah. actually in, introspect, how are you doing? Oh, uh, I'm a little stressed today or, uh, you know, my neck is hurting a little bit. I'm fine. Yes. But it's truth telling. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. But we hear, here's the thing that I'm interested in is I don't think most of us are checking in on ourselves enough. Mm. 
you know, start, if at all, actually. starting their day, kind of saying, okay, where am I at today? Mm. What's going on for me today? Because mm. again, I mean, and this is what I talk about in the, the get ready for your day section of the book. It's like, you, you need to know where you're at. Mm. And I woke up today and I got washed and did on the normal bits. But, you know, I, I knew I was coming to meet you today. I knew we were going to catch up and do a podcast interview. And I've got other stuff on this afternoon. And I thought, I need to know where I'm at today. Mm-hmm. I need to know what's going on for me today. Because if I know the way I'm thinking, where my mood's at, even my physical body, where am I at today? Yeah. Then I kind of think, all right, well, I know what's going on for me today. But it also gives me the choice to make decisions about, okay, what might help today? Mm. Am I anxious today or am I overthinking today or do I need to ground for 10, 15 minutes before I come and do this interview? Do I need to take a walk? Do I need to look at my diary today and take something out or make a couple of adjustments? You cannot make those decisions if you stay on autopilot. Mm. You just can't. Mm. So we have to get much better and much more skilled. And here's the thing, like particularly in the UK and Ireland and stuff, we see all of this stuff as self-indulgent Oh, all this self-care and self-compassion and therapy and stuff. We see it as a, a self-indulgent act when it's like, oh my God, no, it's it is not. And it's absolutely fundamental because your, your brain, as you rightly allude to in your work and your books, you know, it's the epicenter of your experience. So why wouldn't you take time out to manage and take care and look after this organ that is just responsible for all of your experiences? Why do we ignore that and think it's okay just to plod on and get up and cook breakfast and do all the stuff and go to work and see this one and do that and achieve this and do that. And yet all oh, the whole day we've got this organ that's crying out for maintenance and attention and, you know, it ne- needs adjusting and tuning. It needs quietened, you know, it might need rage. You know, it's like, so it's, it's a no brainer to me, pardon the pun. Yeah, <laughs> it's, no, it is, it's, it is a no brainer. I, I love, I love, love, love your work. I think once again, you, you always find an angle that I think is highly needed. Can I ask you of all the 10 to Zen, 10 times happier, and now how, how to, to be, be your own therapist. therapist? If I asked you for one advice, one thing that people should do, or one thing they should realize that would make their lives happier, what's your top advice? I think the key topic Okay, the, my key piece of advice for anybody right across the board, regardless of problem, difficulty, challenge, is treat yourself better. Mm. I think that above everything, if people get nothing from these books or get nothing from therapy or get nothing from anything that's out there in the market, if people learn to treat themselves better, then their life can become a completely different experience. I think people's lives can come alive, literally, if they start to treat themselves better. Because in my experience, most people treat themselves appallingly. Mm. And I really believe that wholeheartedly, that most people talk to themselves and treat themselves in ways that they would never treat or do to another person. And I think if this resonates with you and you're listening and you think, God, I really do give myself a hard time. <laughs> or I really judge myself. Or... I really do talk to myself like I'm an idiot mm. or like someone that doesn't matter. If you can stop that and replace that with something a bit more compassionate, then your life changes today. Mm. I believe that wholeheartedly to be true. I cannot agree more. I think uh, in my work, I say the top reason for unhappiness in the world is lack of self-love, lack of self-care. I, I believe that wholeheartedly. I also believe you're wonderful. Oh, I also you. truly thank and you. honestly, such a pleasure. Every time thank we you. talk, it's a wonderful conversation. Write more. Are you writing another one? I've started to think about the next book. Oh, come on. Chop, yeah. chop. Let's get one other, another yeah, one. No, in. I've got a really great idea for the <laughs> next one. And, and it's really funny, actually, because when you do the first book, you think, oh, okay, God, I didn't think I'd ever write a book in my life. I had someone in my primary school. I had a teacher tell me that I, I was stupid in primary school. Yeah. yeah, we need to get that teacher yeah, yeah. here now. Yeah. And that I couldn't read. And the reason I couldn't read was I was being bullied. So I was frightened of reading at the time. And it did strike me recently. I, now that I've got the third book, I was thinking, God, I'd love to meet that teacher <laughs> in primary school. Who <laughs> and told ask me, him if he's reading. <laughs> yeah. He told me I was stupid, which is why you should never believe, you, know, you should never believe those negative voices or these negative comments that you've heard in your life. But um, it always surprises me. You get another one done and you think, okay, I mean, I guess it's the reach and the platform. You you get this with your books and I know you get many, many people emailing and contacting you. I guess when you see the impact and you suddenly realize that, you know, when you're asleep in bed, people are reading your books in different parts of the world 
and it's bringing comfort and ease. I think there's something powerful yeah, and privileged. That it's yeah. not even about the power; it's about the privilege of the platform. So I guess the third one's done. You know, I can only hope that it's received well and uh, that it's helpful for people. But remarkably, it's bizarre how these things work. Just another concept and idea has come, and I feel really strongly about this next book. I and I thought after think. this one was done, I think maybe I'll retire now. <laughs> take a break. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's the take a break. You don't yeah. go off and live on a cruise ship for a year. I wish. <laughs> that, uh, that actually is, I'm, I'm told this would be very good for writing books. It's like there's nothing else to do, so you start typing away. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I have I have to say, they're, they're always wonderful pieces of work. And for me personally, I, I write, honestly, like you said, to reflect. Don't call them demons, but I really... There are so many things that I need to learn about myself, about life, about what others are going through. And it's, it's such an incredible privilege to feel connected to so many humans. It is just an incredible. Well, it's a part even yeah. of, you, of your story and, and uh, you know, you've told me your story and I know your story and the, the motivation of what drives you. I mean, it is that incredible power of using darkness and pain to create something incredible. And I yeah. think that's, you know, that's something I think we're all called to do and we all can do yeah. if we make that choice. And thank you for having me. I always love our chats and I do it's say that amazing. lately. They always yeah. feel, they always feel very right. Yeah, they are that right. And for all of you listening, I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Owen is a, an incredible human being and, you know, it's just being in his presence is quite a privilege, to be honest. How to be your own therapist, definitely something I recommend you take a look at. I also recommend that you practice because I definitely think having your own little personal trainer is something that, uh, that would be beneficial for every single one of us. Having said that, I love, love, love the idea of... Uh, all that I have to be is to be truthful. I love that. I think I will take this away with me forever. Check in with yourself. See if you're suffering a bit of a PPSD. I think uh, we all are. Perhaps reflect a little bit on your own life. There is a process where you get ready and then you go through your day and then reflect at the end. And uh, there is a technique when you're going through uh, the curveballs of life. I. I'm always grateful that you join me on those conversations. It gives me the excuse to invite amazing friends to have wonderful conversations and record them for you. But uh, even if we were not recording them, we would have them anyway. Remember that your life now is going back to that fast pace and it doesn't matter how busy you are today. There's always a tiny bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.